education work. Um, I was the executive director of Virginia Resources Authority, which is the state bonding. Um, and I'm also the chair of the Virginia Public Building Authority, which um, is the biggest of state Good morning, my name is Linda Johnson. I'm from Hampton Roads, Chesapeake. I moved to Richmond November 2005. I worked in the Kennedy administration, the McCulloch administration as Deputy Secretary of Transportation. I'm now the Deputy Secretary of Administration. I spent 25 years in corporate America. I'm a little young, but I was in corporate America for 25 years in the automotive industry. My background is both basically the soft skills, Okay, uh, the main course today 
in the financial model. And I will say, having um, met John for the first time, I guess back in August, and the amount of time he has put in uh, for us to create our own model, uh, as well as some initial analysis for that, is a very important step. But this is just the first step in the process of the Commission doing its own independent due diligence review of the proposals. We can't do it without this model. And so uh, what John is going to be presenting is uh, an overview of that model and some of the issues that come out of that uh, there. It's a pretty long presentation uh, and fairly detailed. And so, John, I'm going to turn uh, over to you. Uh, the, the, the order of proceedings here, uh, because this is such a key issue, is uh, the uh, commission can feel free to ask questions during the presentation. I think that will help John and help us as we through it. Uh, when that's done, we're going to ask um, the, uh, the city staff, so uh, Mr. Sledge or other folks, uh, Ms. Reed, if they have any uh, initial comments um, regarding that. And then we're going to open it up to uh, a limited amount of time for just audience questions on that. We want to be mindful of time. This is uh, you know, uh, an important foundation uh, for the commission to do its work and to demonstrate its independence uh, and ability to ask questions in a systematic and methodical way. So John, I'm going to turn it over to you and move it down to the podium there. Well, Key arena bond debt parameters 
And a lot of that information comes directly from previous presentations. The numbers uh, that I'm going to be using are numbers that others have already provided. And and so we're all working from the uh, same set of numbers and assumptions. I'll also talk about the planned bond payment sources, again, based on those previous presentations. I'll talk about the overlap between the Navy Hill Fund and the city's future general fund. I'll talk uh, particularly about the incremental real estate taxes from existing properties within the increment financing area. I'll especially be looking at the next five years because that uh, is something that we're beginning to get a clearer uh, idea of what's involved based on an accelerated bond payment schedule. I'll also talk about the goals of the Advisory Commission's financial model, which essentially uses the work of others as part of our effort. I'll talk about the confirmation levels for bond payment sources in general, and and specifically uh, current confirmation level for arena sponsorship and the development parcels. I'll talk a little bit about causation versus correlation as it involves this project, as well as the the potential for cannibalization. I'll briefly talk about the Hunden effect because that's been mentioned a number number of times before in presentations. And finally, I'll talk about next steps for this effort. So let's go. As far as the due diligence approach overall, it's important to keep in mind that it's neutral. It's similar to an audit. Uh, The goal is uh, to take a default position that uncertainty increases risk. And so the more certainty we can bring to this process, the better, because that helps decrease risk for the project. The other goal is to identify levels of uncertainty through confirmation. We're not questioning, we're not suspecting. Uh, This process is like an audit. I'm simply asking for backup confirmation for certain important statements and uh, numbers that have been presented. There's also the, 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 the idea that the absence of confirmation increases uncertainty. And so having a vacuum where we don't know is actually a worse situation than getting into the nitty-gritty of what kind of confirmation we actually have. Then this effort would also add sensitivity to what we call what-if analysis uh, as far as what would happen if uh, a certain payment stream didn't happen, what would happen if a growth rate was different than what is already being projected, and our model will have the ability to do that. It adds additional analysis, if needed, to aid City Council in its consideration of the Navy Hill ordinances. We want to be responsive, and I feel we have been responsive to requests by City Council uh, for any type of uh, special analysis, because in the end, that's who we are serving. From my perspective, as a consultant, I consider them uh, our clients, and so we are uh, ultimately providing advice to City Council and should be responsive to what they would like. So let's talk uh, about the bond for the arena overall. And I did want to start by saying that at this point, even though I will be talking about many bond parameters, at this moment, they are planned. And to a certain extent, they are evolving. 
And, uh, and that's because if you look at the actual ordinance uh, that you have in your binder, ordinance number 2019-211, the big one, over a thousand pages, that in that ordinance, in the cooperation agreement, uh, it specifically says that the bonds are going to be determined by the EDA as far as the amount, the interest rate, the duration, and the security. So as far as what's contractual, what's actually in the legal agreement, there are no specifics as far as the bond. Uh, so everything I'm going to talk about is the current plan. That plan can change uh, since the ordinance right now doesn't bind that plan to any specific parameters. The main source of what I'm going to be talking about are numbers for MooneyCap. MooneyCap is a well-respected uh, consulting group. Uh, they prepare uh, projections for tax revenues I've, that I've personally seen in bond prospectus for other municipalities when they do TIF district bonds or other kinds of bonds that rely on future tax revenues. Often I'll see a MooneyCap report as part of that. I'm using that, and so they have done a very similar effort here in projecting the uh, tax revenues for payment of the arena bond. And what I like in particular about MooneyCap is that, as you can see here at the bottom of this particular slide, which is, a, is from the cover page of their report, they give you the assumptions right up front as far as what it assumes. It's the traditional financial model that gives you all the assumptions up front so that you know pretty much what it's based on and what the assumptions are, and then it methodically goes through and calculates the results. So let's talk about what, and I'm just going to bring up highlights uh, of the bond debt parameters because quite a bit has already been said, and these are from these past presentations, and if you go back to specific presentations that have been made, you'll get much more detail than I'm going to talk about at this moment. But here are the highlights. The overall assumption for the arena bond, and this actually has not been said, but should be said, are the following. First of all, that Richmond needs an operating arena or coliseum. The bond assumes that the existing coliseum should not be reopened as is. It also assumes that the existing coliseum is not renovated. It assumes, therefore, that a new arena is constructed, and that bond is solely aimed at providing the funds to build that new arena. It assumes that it's a 17,500-seat new arena uh, and not any other size. It also assumes that the new arena is not privately owned and financed. Otherwise, I wouldn't even be talking about an arena bond. It also assumes that the cost of constructing the arena is not shared with a company, as in the case with other arenas where, say, you have a tennis a professional sports team that's helping to share the cost of constructing that arena. It also assumes that the cost of the arena is not shared with counties in the metro area, which has been the case uh, in our area, for example, with the Diamond uh, that was built back in the 1980s, where the costs were equally shared between the city and Enrico and Chesterfield. Also, the convention 
Convention Center also has uh, shared financing as well as our airport. Uh, all of those have shared financing between the city and the counties. This would not. It also assumes the cost of the arena is not substantially shared with the state. And I say substantially because if you look at the numbers, there is a subsidy from the state that's in the state code that allows rebates of certain state taxes if they are associated with a new facility like an arena. So there is some uh, support from the state. But I would say in proportion to what the city is paying, it is not substantial. And finally, it assumes that the arena is built as soon as reasonably possible. Essentially, it's the first thing that gets started right away, as soon as council would begin the project. It isn't delayed any period of time. It's pretty much done as soon as it can be done. And so that's a key assumption in the arena bond. The current total amount for the arena bond is $311, which I highlight there, but you really can't see because it's too small. But trust me, it says $311 billion. Also, the arena cost itself is $245 million. And again, this is uh, from a Davenport presentation, and you have the $245 million right, right here at the top of the right column, and so right now that is the cost for the arena. The additional costs are for capitalized interest and payoff of the existing Coliseum debt and other overhead uh, issuance costs for the arena. Uh, John, for the benefit of the folks on the commission, can you describe what capitalized interest is? Capitalized interest essentially is taking part of what you are funding and making that available to help pay for that bond during the initial years. So that essentially, you know that right off, uh, you're not gonna have the income stream that you expect because you're building the facility. Uh, and so you would capitalize a certain amount of the interest so that it would be paying back the bond uh, during that uh, development period. John, yeah. uh, Say yes or no. And this goes back to your, your question for your comments about the EDA. Yeah. And this potential lift is being determined by the EDA. I'm yes. assuming that you are saying that California had this right to delegate from city council to the EDA and that there is no um, recommended check in process from the EDA to city council over the course of time and how that process occurred. We are saying that question. So there's So all 
they're in control of that bond. Uh, what has happened elsewhere and, uh, and, uh, is a situation, and the one that immediately comes to mind is Bristol, uh, out here in Virginia, where their EDA initially, similar process, ready to bond by the EDA, they initially, within the EDA's board, approved a the overall parameters for that bond. Because you can't really nail down the interest rate, for example, so that can fluctuate by day. But they had a range. Here's the range of that interest rate. That gets approved along with the amount of the bond and the duration of the bond. So they basically know the essentials of what that entity is going to issue. In that case, it then went to a bond validation suit in which a court then said, yes, this is a valid bond. And then, uh, and that therefore, you know, it will unlikely be contested if it is issued. And then after that, a few months later, the results of that effort then goes to city council there. And, and when they have uh, their consideration, they have in front of them not only what's already been done by the EDA, but they have the draft bond prospectus, they have the uh, draft uh, deed of indenture from the trustee, the bond trustee, which is looking out for the interests of the bondholders. They have a draft bond purchase agreement, which would come from the underwriters who are buying the bonds initially and then reselling them. And so then they would have those particulars. In our case, what's happening is that city council is, in a way, going first. Even though the EDA is ultimately doing this, the process is for the council to initially approve the development agreement. And then once council approves it, assuming they do, then the CAO would work with the EDA to determine the specifics. And then ultimately, before the bonds are actually issued, council would need to approve it again. But by, at that point, it will have already committed to the development agreement. You know, all of these legal agreements would have all been in place. And so essentially, it would be very difficult for them to make changes. And that was the situation, for example, with the Broad Street CDA, where similar process here. They were brought in the development agreement first. They approved it with the expectation uh, that the Broad Street CDA, a separate entity back then, would issue ninety five million dollars of bonds. Just to make sure they're once completed, essentially what I heard you say is that once you go to the first gate, that there is very little control by the city council of that process that's not going. So you say Right. Once council approves this, then it's an essentially from my understanding, it's in the hands then of the CAO and the EDA to figure out all the particulars that we're talking about. I would uh sort of a key moment in this process, which is when there's a determination whether the conditions precede to the issuance of the bonds have been satisfied. And the way I read the way the documents are put together, that is a moment in which the city council will be able to speak. And so they will be able to say at that point, we're not satisfied. Um, now, they will sign a development agreement and they can't act unreasonably, but what, has, what happens at that moment is they verify.
Overall, coming back to the bond parameters, some of the basic aspects, the interest rate is higher. Excuse me, just one second. I want to come back to the excess incremental revenue. Yes. If the tax district base is established in January of next year, you would not see any appreciation growth until the following year, right? Yes. So how do you get additional tax revenue in the first year of a tax increment zone? Well, the way I understand it is that essentially is because of the technicality. If you look at, and this also points out the importance of the specific wording in the legal agreements. If you look at the developer agreement, it says that the base amount, if that's the baseline, everything above the baseline is incremental. That the baseline is based on the proposed 2020 assessed value of property. Not the actual value at the time, say, council approves the ordinance. It's based on the proposed assessment value, which was sent from what I hear a mailing that was done last June. And in that mailing, the first Dominion Tower uh, had a lower assessed value in the proposed 2020 assessed value than is its current market value. If you go on to the city assessor database right now and look for Dominion Tower 1, this is the existing tower, that its value is actually higher than if you go into the Mooney cap and look at what the base value is. And that's that essentially means that, and that amount is about $2 million of tax revenue. So as soon as council approves this ordinance, assuming that they do, they would automatically be $2 million in it from that technical situation. And again, we don't want to go into details, but that's a unique feature of the ordinance, right? And the definition, uh, again, something I think we need to dive into a little bit more. Yes. Coming back to the overall parameters of the, of the arena bond, the interest rate is higher than general obligation bonds. Not surprising at all. Revenue bonds are generally higher because of higher risk. And, uh, and so in this case, there is a higher uh, interest rate that would be paid uh, for this bond uh, because of that situation that th these are not general obligation bonds. The bonds are also currently proposed to be issued in April 2020, which is only a few months from now. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, the timeline that is currently being presented has that happening and everything that's needed before then. And if you look at the annual, this is again from MoneyCap, this is the debt payment by year for that bond. You really can't see the specific numbers, but if you download the slides, and I will make them available uh, as soon as I finish, just send me an email, then you could actually see the actual numbers. But really, if you just go to the MoneyCap report, you would see the annual debt service. In this particular case, this is based on the regular uh, amortization schedule. The, the, when it, and I'll talk about an accelerated plan, but this is based on the regular amortization, it going to full term of the bond. If that occurs, payment would total over $600 million in total for the two bonds. You have a tax-exempt bond, which is the largest, and a taxable bond, which is smaller, and, and combined, it would, it, the total payments would be uh, 
more than $600 million. Then if you look at the bond payment sources, again, this is for the bond based on it doing the, the regular amortization schedule. And I'll, again, I just want to emphasize that because I'm going to talk shortly about the plan accelerated uh, payment uh, approach using what they call turbo payments. But based on the regular amortization schedule, this is where the bond payments would come from. And this is from a Mooneycap presentation they presented just last Monday. And overall, as you can see here, most is coming from real estate property taxes, uh, both from the new development and from, and from the Dominion Towers. And the current bond financing plan does assume both towers are built. There's only one existing right now. The other is planned. We've been seeing in uh, the news that uh, whether or not that happens at this point is uncertain. However, a decision is supposed to be made in the next few months, so we should be finding out soon what will be happening with the second uh, Dominion Tower. And then the remaining part of the incremental financing area, which I'll focus on in particular a little later, but also, and this just gives you a sense of all the different payment streams involved. You have a rebate of sales taxes for the development parcels, just the development parcels. Same with the meals taxes, lodging taxes for the new convention hotel and other accommodations that are on the development parcels, the BPOL taxes, a small amount, the arena revenues themselves, and that is primarily uh, sponsorship and rebate of taxes uh, on items purchased within the arena. Then you have uh, the music hall, armory, other sort of revenue sources. That includes a rebate of $2 million for parking, uh, for parking collected uh, during the... Um, in future years. Overall, and this is what Mooneycap said, uh, was that real property taxes are stable and most reliable estimate. As you can see that from the bondholder perspective, from the underwriter's perspective, they like this approach. Yeah, most of the money is coming from, uh, from real estate taxes. That tends to be uh, uh, more certain because especially uh, taxes from existing properties within the increment financing area, yeah, there's an assurance that's going to happen. Yeah, they're already there. They're already paying taxes. Those taxes should increase at a certain amount. The city assessor estimates that for the city overall, uh, assessments generally increase at roughly about 2% annually. So if you use that rule of thumb for this area, then you should be safe. And from my own research, I was able to download all the 900 plus parcels within the increment financing area, look at just the taxable parcels, uh, which is what Mooneycap looks at when they establish their base value. Uh, and if you look at the taxable property within the increment financing area, right now for the last few years, and in particular for the last two years, the growth of taxable property within the increment financing area has been 2% or higher. Actually, for 2019, it was roughly 2%, and for 2020, 2.4%. Uh, and that's excluding the existing Dominion Tower 1. John, you talk a bit about the arena specifically about that later, so why don't you hold that question until then. I don't talk about that in particular, but there is a rebate of uh, money collected for the parking garages and for, uh, for 
within the increment financing area, and that is capped at $2 million a year. And if you look at the Mooney cap projections, they pretty much assume $2 million a year coming in uh, it's a few, starting a few years from now. I can't hear what that question is. How does this uh, development on the map over here break out the projected development for the food service? Oh, the projected development 23% that's up there, that is real estate taxes from the development parcels. That are, that are highlighted on these maps. These are the parcels that are currently uh, city-owned that would be transferred to the private developer to be developed, and then the, the future property taxes from those specific parcels would then be used to help pay the bond. And in essence, these are the parcels in blue. Yes, the parcels in blue on the side. And the, the, so let's say all of the new development is built by 2025. I know that's not necessarily the case, but let's just assume that. The, uh, did they assume that the growth rate on the uh, projected development would be at the same uh, growth and assessment rate as it would be for the rest of the income district? Yes, from what I've seen, pretty much the 2% rule of thumb that the city assessor uh, feels comfortable with for the city of the whole, and which, as I had just moment, uh, a moment ago noted, has been the experience in the last couple of years within the increment financing area, even putting aside the, the First Dominion Tower. They are all using that same 2%. Your taxes are residential commercial for the U.S. rates? They're using, it for this, uh, for the projections, they're using the same uh, $1.20 per 100. Yeah, for the real estate taxes. There are other taxes, but one single tax. Yeah. So, I'm sorry. Uh, is it, if um, 2%, I assume, assumes uh, constant rates, con- whatever the con- tax rate is, 157, whatever it is, I don't know what it is. That stays the same, but assessments grow, right? The, the rate right, grow. right. No, there's no assumed change in the rate. And if uh, the city raised the rate by a penny, would would that you know, additional increment of tax revenue um, go to bonds? Yes. So if there was a tax increase, because the base level is set at the 20, 20 uh, proposed level, so that's locked in on the, and, and that essentially was based on the current tax rate. So if you increase the tax rate, that would essentially uh, mean more revenue, uh, and that would all, and that additional revenue would go to the bottom. That's why I read it. Sure. Okay. So going on to back to this uh, to the bond parameters. This is again from MooneyCap. This is the plan total revenues and debt coverage ratio. What I've highlighted <coughs> here is first of all, here is the total revenues coming in, which again, they're too small for anyone in the audience to see, but you'd be able to see it in the slide. Uh, and again, this is from the Moody Cap report, so it's there if you've looked at that report. What I really want to point out is that uh, there is a, a debt coverage ratio.
ratio, and here it's percentages rather than a ratio. But where I've highlighted right there, in, in the, essentially once uh, there's a almost full income stream coming in, that there is a uh, 250%, I mean not 250, uh, 150% or uh, 1.5 debt ratio is being used and that ratio is, uh, as, and that is typically considered the minimum uh, coverage ratio. And if you're, if you're bond, you know, when, when, when uh, there have been presentations brought up before, and if you look at the answers to the, uh, that the city asked, uh, the responses to questions that the city asked the developer last year, there's a constant reminder of the need to achieve at least a 1.5 debt uh, coverage ratio. That debt cut, you know, that's considered the minimum, and the reason that uh, the bond uh, underwriters are comfortable with the 1.5 is that that gives you a cushion to absorb future interruptions. And so, yeah, these do not assume any recession for the next uh, two decades and plus. Uh, we know that's not really going to be the case. So from their perspective, by having a 1.5 minimum debt coverage ratio, they sh then the bondholders should be covered if there is a recession at some point or multiple times during this process. It would come down closer to one, maybe even temporarily below one, but the idea is if you've got that minimum 1.5, that overall you're going to be okay. Now that's the, the uh, regular amortization approach. And that is the approach, from my understanding, that could ultimately be used can always fall back to this approach as far as paying the bonds over the full term of uh, the bond, which goes up until 2048. However, there is also in the plan, and this and this seems to be now uh, assumed that there would be uh, a approach of accelerating the bond payment uh, using what they call turbo payments. And that's here in the, the red area, which again is too small for those in the audience to read, but it's, this is directly from the Citigroup uh, slide from last Monday, that essentially uh, the plan uh, that would actually be used would be that for the first few years, pretty much all of the revenue coming in is going to be used to build up uh, the, the, the uh, bond stabilization fund. Even though it does have capitalized interest, even though it does have a debt reserve fund, there's a, a, a stabilization fund that also helps to make sure that the bondholders get paid. And that stabilization fund is paid for by the payment stream during the initial years of operation. And that was shown graphically. Again, this is from the Citigroup uh, presentation from last Monday. What you see here, that during the first five years, essentially all of the incremental tax revenues from all sources is being used to build up, to not only uh, initially pay the bonds, but also to build up that stabilization fund. And, and uh, Citigroup emphasized this. And, 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 
So they're, they're not trying to hide anything here. They said right up here at the top that essentially for the first five years that the city would not be getting any of the money that is part of the tax revenue stream. That all of it would be used to pay the bond and to build up the stabilization fund. And when you go out to the 10 years, they estimate that after, that within 10 years, after that stabilization fund has been built up, then there's a, a plan, as, I, as was just stated here, where 50% of what is defined as excess, again, that's a contextual definition, that's the extra amount above what's needed to pay the bond, that 50% of that excess amount would then be shared back to the city. But based on this approach, that during the first 10 years, that they're estimating about $36 million would actually come back, and that would be from years 5 through 10, since during the first five years, there's essentially nothing uh, coming back to the city. And this is important, as I'll point out later. But this is the current plan for the accelerated payment. Yeah, just look at that chart. I read it as saying the green bar, once it's released for the stabilization fund and the excess revenue, that green portion comes back to the city out of those funds. Is that correct? Right. Eventually, the plan is that eventually all of what's been put into the stabilization fund, that's why you got this big jump here, that's the payout here. You know, it's, it, it's paid out earlier than the normal full term. It doesn't go to 2048. And therefore, once it has been fully paid off using this accelerated approach, at that point, bonds paid for. They don't need the debt reserve fund anymore. They don't need the stabilization fund anymore. So all you know, that money then comes back to the city. But what this essentially, what this tells you is the amount of the city money that's that's been put into it, going in, you know, going up to that point. That I mean, it's a significant amount of money coming back. Well, that was the money that was put in to build up those funds uh, in the first place. And then from then on, you know, then essentially the bonds paid off and all the tax revenues go to the city. At this point, I want to emphasize the categories that are very important because I'm going to start talking about two big ones. What you see in the, the previous slide is total revenues available uh, for debt service. It's not the one right before this one, but one of the earlier slides. That includes incremental real estate tax revenues from existing properties in the increment financing area. By itself, and I think this is an important aspect to, to remember about TIF, increment financing areas or TIF districts in general, that conventionally, a TIF district, or in our case, an increment financing area, by itself does not cause any new tax revenues. There's no special assessment fee to live in this increment financing area, as other kinds of financing plans might have. So there's no special fee. There's no extra surcharge. It doesn't, therefore, immediately cause money to occur, except in, in, in what I just said a moment ago, the technicality involving uh, the First Dominion Tower. But in general, it doesn't cause new tax revenues by itself. What it does instead, it categorizes future tax revenues. And if you're looking at it from the perspective of one of those categories, and in this case, the Navy Hill Fund, that money seems to be 
money coming in that's that's created, that's cost. But often that's money that's being transferred. And uh, in this particular case with the bond financing plan, one category is the Navy Hill Fund. There's an actual ordinance to create that fund and to dedicate certain uh, tax revenue streams to that fund. So that's one important category. And really, that's the only category that if you look at the bond financing documents, that they're looking at is that fund, because that's, that's what's paying the bond. You know, from their perspective, they're doing their job. Their job is to find a way to pay the bonds, tell you what's involved with doing that, and, and, and say, here's the money coming in based on what you've dedicated. Here's the money going to pay the bond. Here's what's, uh, as we define, excess, and, 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 and so forth. However, there is another category, and that is the city of Richmond's future general fund. And that's the, essentially the city has a general fund which pays for basic services and everything else. There are tax revenues that would normally have gone to that general fund, which are now involved with the Navy Hill Fund. And that's what I really want to focus on, because the bond financing documents, that's not their perspective. They're looking at it from within the Navy Hill Fund. Sorry, earlier you said there was an assumption that the developer was now picking up the incremental properties in the TIF area. And then you said that the TIF area doesn't generate more revenues. Could you help me align those two statements? Earlier you said in the TIF area yes. that it generates more revenues by the transfer of the public to private entities, developers. And then the next statement you said was a tip does not carry does not yes. okay. no, 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 no. There, there, there's, a, there's a subtle difference the tip district designation designation itself does not cause new tax revenues the additional tax revenues coming from the development parcels based on taking the current value which is very low because it's pretty you know, it's city owned and has relatively low value versus once it's been developed by the private developer. That new taxes isn't created by the TIF district. That new taxes is created by the development. Whether or not you have a TIF district, if those parcels get developed, you get those tax revenues. So that, that's the subject. One question also. How are the terms excess and surplus applied to or work through each one of the funds? Well, the important thing to keep in mind is that you have to look at it within the context of the overall perspective. And the perspective of most of the presentations and bond financing documents is within the perspective of the Navy Hill Fund. So revenues coming in is simply revenues coming into the Navy Hill Fund. And and, and the payment of the bond is, is what it is, and then what they're defining as the excess or surplus is the difference between the two within the context of the Navy Hill Fund and the Arena Fund. So everything with our preoccupation with, with the ordinance is the creation of the Navy Hill Fund, yes. which is the, the fund where all of these all of these uh, new uh, taxes and uh, new revenues are going to be uh, deposited to then primarily go for the first
and then the and then if we use the accelerated schedule, and then the majority of the increases, the excess increases in tax revenues come to the city 2040 and later. That's sort of a quick and easy understanding. Yeah, except that I think it's important to point out. But there, there is some that come in earlier than that. But you're also creating a special fund, the reservoir, if you will, to ensure that the bonds are, are paid primarily, they're paid first and they're paid primarily. The bondholders. Right. Yes. Okay. I mean, the, the payment streams are, are, are set up for the Navy Hill Fund, as I said a moment ago, were based on the, on the current plan and projections that they're going to get uh, at least one and a half times what's needed to pay the bond. And that additional you know, half time is a buffer you know, to, to give them a cushion to absorb future recessions and other possible disruptions. And a lot of that, you know, of that buffer essentially uh, is from uh, future uh, real estate taxes from existing properties, which based on the plan, based on the numbers happening as expected, based on the projections occurring as expected, there would be a return, but that is not guaranteed. I mean, once it goes into the general fund, especially during the first five years, nothing comes out. You know, during the, uh, the following five years, up to 10 years, a little bit comes out. Then there's the expectation, based on the projections, that there would be enough money coming from the new development parcels in particular to take the lion's share of paying for the bonds, or at least a substantial part. That, and then therefore there's less reliance on the existing uh, property real estate taxes, and so that money comes back. So really the way to look at it from, oh my, and again, I'm, I'm a layperson, so I, I, from uh, the way I look at it, from that perspective, the, the legal game is the Navy Hill Fund the money goes in. It will be used for the bond payments if that's necessary. It may be returned to the city if there's enough to pay for the bonds based on the accelerated schedule. But I think that's the emphasis, is that there's no guarantee it's coming back. But it's slow. I'm sorry. Can you, can you refresh us back on memory of the close of the financial deal? It is some benefit to the city, is that not right? And some revenue generated from the city and the sale of various properties. Yes, there is. How does that work? There are, there are our properties being sold. Uh, there is a question on city council whether or not the, the value that's been negotiated would be uh, fair market value based on an appraisal. Uh, but there is about, uh, I think, 16 million. Correct me if I'm wrong. 15.1 million that would be paid for those uh, for those parcels. And those are not in any way tied to any type of repayment or any other thing. What is those, in your opinion, as far as funds and where does it go and how is it tied? Good question, and honestly, I'm not sure because if you look at the developer agreement, there is a, a clause that says that that money goes into a escrow account of some sort. I don't know for how long, but uh, as far as uh, payment of the bond, that money is not not used for that. However, you know, if the city was to sell those parcels outside of this plan, it would receive 
role of, if you will, CAO or EPA. And the dollar, if you will, I know uh, we have Marcus in and others that really clarifying the relationships where the thoughts are done. What in this that we talk about, particularly words that surplus and consideration of the funds, when payment begins or at least close, what obligations do, uh, uh, can you clarify the obligations that, if you will, the private investors have to, if you will, contribute uh, to public improvements and other things that are stated in the audience? Yes, there are developer really commitments, and I'm actually going to have a slide on that, that talks about the commitment as far as financing, because that's a due diligence aspect. Uh, that's in the developer agreement. I'll talk about that. It is, not, it is not simply that dollars go into a fund set and just right back. It is some other things that seem to be happening in this house. Right, right. No, no, and, and I think that's a really important point, because... I can only talk about so much in this presentation. So the framework of my presentation is about the bond financing and what's involved with that and the payments that are used to do that. This plan has other benefits. You know, those benefits, according to the plan, include you know, the number of, of new affordable housing units. It includes uh, other benefits uh, as well. Uh, and the a stronger word is a stronger word like obligation or something that needs to be doesn't develop or the private investor have obligation to certain things that are stated and well, I mean, it's not just simply it's a benefit that may or may not happen. Right. It's it's within it's within the uh, developer agreement. There is specific language in the developer agreement. First of all about financial commitment, and I actually have a slide about that coming up, as well as other commitments, affordable housing, the uh, uh, minority participation, and other uh, aspects are in there. It's just that from what I'm talking about, I'm focused on the bond financing. So can I um, chart with the stabilization fund peak Showing the portion of excess revenues to go to the city, the portion to go to the bonds, turbo, etc. Um, do you think it's fair to say that in the early years that the city is, in a sense, foregoing the benefit of the increase in assessments in the increment area? which it is then being compensated for later on because of the fact that there's been new development which generates new taxes. Uh, and the growth in uh, tax assessment over the human district generally, assuming the 2% growth rate, catches up to the bond payments. And so then what happens is City sort of uh, forgoes early revenues in exchange for a higher volume of late revenues. I think that's a fair description. That's what the plan says. I think what I want to point out again, in my role as uh, an advisor, if I was doing this for municipality, would be to identify the in, uh, the levels of commitment and. Risk 
from existing properties that would normally have gone to the general fund, and I'm actually going to talk about that in a moment. Uh, you can look at that from the plan's perspective. They, they're essentially saying this is uh, justified as a, a city investment in the ultimate benefits of this plan. But my job as an advisor is to point out there is an investment. And that is millions of dollars, and I'll, I have a specific estimate in a moment, during the first five years. And, and, and the risk of all of the increment tax revenues from existing properties, which go into the fund, in which there's no guarantee that they come out, that there's a risk of assembly that if, if there are uh, unexpected uh, changes that we don't know about, that ultimately that money's at risk too. And so you know, I feel obligated, as far as my role with council, to let them know that's what they're at risk. So I'll just editorialize one second. When we dive into individual revenue sources, I think some of these questions will become a little more clear. Depending upon the source, uh, you can estimate what is the potential foregone general fund revenue. So the perspective of um, you know the, the work that's been done is from the bonds. What do I need to do to protect the bonds? Fair question. But the flip side needs to be what do we need to do to protect the general fund and the general services of the city? And, and so I think uh, when we start getting into revenue sources, things that uh, they're going to be critical are schedule. Will these things all be built up and running by 2023? Uh, will the revenue factor associated with each be uh, uh, in the estimate? So my guess is, as we work through this, we're going to start to see, you know, kind of an ebb flow of how those will work as we look at different scenarios. And I don't want to belabor that because I know mean, you've got a lot to get to work through, John, so let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Dr. Lucas, maybe about a quarter out, we can suspend. I know you're going to get back, you know, over to the campus. But if you wanted to spend a little bit of time before you head out. general fund uh, and the Navy Hill Fund. I'm going to show that graphically in a moment. And that the accelerated debt schedule with the turbo payments uh, would use all of that overlap during the first five years and most of that overlap from years six to ten. Can I ask a question about the turbo payment? Is that, that um, turbo payment, is that something that investors want to see? So they, yes. What's driving the turbo payment? Essentially, it allows it, 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 it allows them more security. If times are good during the next, say, ten years, we don't have that recession that we keep hearing about that could be coming as soon as next year. That, that, let's, let's imagine that doesn't happen. That's a decade away. Then, and times are still rolling along. See, with an accelerated plan, they get their money faster during the good times which then allows them, let's say if 20 years from now there is a, a severe recession similar to what we had 10 years ago, see by then they've already gotten ahead. And then if they end up with a few bad years in which they're not even able to get
if things turn out better in the short term, then they essentially, the bonds are paid off early and they're safe. If things turn out badly in the short term, then everything, then the whole turbo plan doesn't work as planned, as conceived, and they go back to the regular amortization schedule. So as long as this revenue comes in by 2048, from, especially from the increment financing area, I mean, they, as, as the slide said earlier for Moonycap, you know, the real estate taxes are the most certain form of future revenue in the eyes of bondholders. Is, you know, that's pretty reliable. Those properties are already built, they're already paying taxes, we can assume they'll continue to pay taxes, well, since there has been an increase in assessed value historically, we can expect that to occur unless there is some uh, you know, economic uh, crisis, and therefore that's reliable. That's, in many reasons, that's why this plan has this expanded tip district, was to give bondholders that additional this is where I want us to really be very careful because we, we, the conversation has been uh, preoccupied with uh, payments to the bondholders. And really, this is uh, the model of the financialization of municipal areas. Our concern also is with creating a fund where we're attempting to develop an area to enhance the lives of citizens throughout the city of Richmond. And that, that has not been the problem, that has not taken the priority in these conversations or the structure. So we are concerned, so I'm going to say I am concerned that the creation of the Navy Hill Fund with this accelerated bond repayment mechanism and the lag in which Funds are transferred, or possibility of transfer out of the Navy Hill Fund to the General Fund to fund things like schools, uh, to fund things like housing. Even the schedule for affordable housing has it such that the first building has no affordable housing in. That's our. That's also a concern that we have to be uh, cognizant of when we are developing or when we are, uh, when we look at the creation of this particular ordinance for the Navy Hill Fund that then creates a, a payment mechanism that then does not entail uh, full payment uh, for the outlying issues that we're discussing until lab, until uh, 2040 and beyond. So I want to just make sure that, that, that we have that in the conversation and that when we get to even the schedule of, uh, of revenues, those revenue streams, I think we're going to look at, you know, the 23% of our development within the uh, district, within that tip area that, that provides us with funding. Uh, we're also going to look at the mix for the proposed arena uh, around programming. Uh, that then gives us 13% that we then begin to consider there's a full plan, panoply of issues that come to the forefront when we create this Navy Hill Fund, that ordinance. It's just not an ordinance to create a fund just to have the fund to be a collection mechanism. There are implications for that. Yes, I agree with you. And what I'm doing is beginning that conversation. And by transitioning from what has been discussed in the 
thus far for the most part, which does focus on the Navy Hill Fund paying off this arena bond because it's been mainly by people involved with doing that. And so as the commission, since we're serving a city council, which is concerned with the entire city and interests that go beyond the arena and paying this bond, that our job is to widen the perspective. My personal role is to try to do this uh, quantitatively, and that's what I'm starting to do now, which essentially is identify what's in this overlap area. And uh, so now I come back to the slide. But the point I'm making that just to finish answering your question is that what's in this overlap area is our funds that uh, would be uh, dedicated to the Navy Hill Fund. And again, this is not a proportion. So, uh, so this is a conceptual diagram. It's just to show the overlap area and what I see is in it, uh, specifically incremental real estate taxes from existing properties within the increment financing area. We know that without this plan, that money goes to the future general fund. So that's definitely in the overlap area. Uh, there could be other revenues as well, based on some of the things I'll talk about. But what's important is that there is overlap, and that at least for the first five years, money that would be in this overlap is now part of this circle rather than the future general fund circle. And it's so. But so Inspector Walker brings up a great point. But what you're also saying is that in the financing and clothes, the benefits that are derived to, if you will, the bond, even with a turbo approach, doesn't delay or stop the obligations that are also developed. So what we do know is it says uh, in, in the agreement that even on, on, on first housing development project is affordable housing that has to be a part of that. Now that's not compromise. I think we need clarity on how the financing model uh, correlates or stays in tune in time uh, with the business model that is also implied that is not necessarily covered in this detail. But it, it is not that the, the the, the benefits of the project have to wait, it seems, right? You're not suggesting that, are you? No. What's in the developer agreement because I, are contractual obligations. I'll leave it to the lawyers to decide how strong the contractual obligations are. Well, I always think about uh, legal agreements is that um, if the incentives are right, people tend to perform. And if the incentives are wrong, people tend to find ways not to. Um, so I think one of the one of the questions, because I have the same question that that uh, Corey's raising and that he was right raising is that uh, I've done a lot of projects sort of like this in different settings, and you know you sort of look at it from your own perspective. So let's say this was a wind project in South Dakota, which is financed like this, which would, would be the case, too. Um, the revenues that fund the debt come from the wind project. It blows, makes electricity, it sells electricity, but if the wind project isn't built right, and if it doesn't operate right, that won't gen generate the revenues necessary to pay the debt service. 
peculiar things about this project is that the the success, let's say, of the arena, the question is whether the debt, who's the person with the most at stake here, does the debt have an interest in the success of the project? Does the debt really want the affordable housing to be built? Because that's going to generate more tax revenues. Does the debt really care that the arena gets built and is operated well and is well maintained? Because then, since they've got $311 million at stake, they're going to be sure it happens. Um, so I think one of the one of the things that um, we also ought to think about is what are the how are the incentives? Because uh, are the project participants going to have an ongoing incentive to do what they say they're going to do? And uh, does the debt have an ongoing incentive to make everybody do what they say they're going to do? Because otherwise they're going to be repaid. And I think that's just one of the things, one of the issues. For example, if 13% of the bond revenue comes from arena, the arena revenues, then you would think they're going to be really interested in being sure that at least there's enough revenue generated to pay that 13%. Um, but I just think we need to think about that. Let's say for the affordable housing, let's say for the transfer station, let's say for the you know, the, uh, the office building. I think we need to understand the incentives because if the incentives are right, the legal documents are likely to be enforced and, and effective. If the incentives aren't right, people find ways to avoid the forms. Okay. We really, uh, these are really, really important uh, questions. we got a ton to get okay. through. I will simply, um, from my own perspective, there is always a fallback here we have real estate. And that is the unique aspect of this deal, which has nothing to do with the project. And that's why it's a challenge, is the, the, the mix of revenue sources give it some uh, uh, diversity, but also there's not clear-cut incentives, as you described. We really need to move along here, John, so, and, uh, so what I'll suggest is maybe we go for that another um, 10 minutes on the presentation. Um, Dr. Lucas will get a few comments from you before you have to leave, and we'll take a short short break and come back to the presentation. Okay. So what you have here is a diagram between the two funds. It's illustrating the points I've been making that based on the financing plan, you have an overlap area, uh, primarily incremental real estate taxes from existing properties within the increment financing area that would in the future be going to the future general fund, which uh, at least for the first five years uh, would not be, and it is not guaranteed for the entire period of the bond would go to the future general fund. There are other uh, potential tax revenues, and I'll talk about that as well, that could be in the overlap area, not as certain as this right now. Then there are aspects that are clearly in the Navy Hill Fund. Uh, for example, you've got the debt reserve income. There's a debt reserve that's there to help pay the bond. While it's not being used, it's going to be invested. And so the money made from those investments are going to be used to help pay the bond. So that's directly involved with the Navy Hill Fund. If this plan didn't happen, you wouldn't have that income. Same can be said for the arena sponsorship revenues, and I'll talk specifically about that later. And then uh, the arena taxes from sales, no arena. You're not 
So that would be it. And then I have here as question marks because there is uh, a, a, an opportunity situation here as far as the other tax revenues, the meals tax revenues, sales tax revenues, and such. Uh, and I'll talk about this in, in a moment as far as can, potential cannibalization or correlation of development. That at least potentially what appears in the plan as being uh, caused directly by the Navy Hill Fund could actually be here in this overlap area and could actually be part of the future general fund even without the arena. And so that's what this is showing conceptually is uh, those aspects. This is the uh, plan tax revenues from the existing real estate property. I really wanted to focus in on that overlap area, primarily the existing real estate properties. And as uh, I've already said, the first five years, uh, we're being told under the accelerated plan that essentially everything going into the Navy Hill Fund uh, would not be shared. And, and based on the Mooney Cap numbers, I was able to isolate just the existing uh, properties within the increment financing area uh, and including the existing Dominion Tower 1 for the first five years. Uh, based on those numbers, you're looking at a total of $17 million for the first five years. For the entire normal amortization period, the amount is over $300 million, 316, I believe. Exactly. Again, I know here is the source. These are my calculations. But I am using the uh, columns, essentially, the numbers from the movie cap uh, and their, their tax rate numbers, assessed growth rate, everything else. And if you add in the future revenue from the development parcels, the tax revenues from real estate assessments, then the numbers would sink up. This, this has everything except uh, the developer parcels, which is part of this plan, and except the future uh, Dominion Tower 2, which at this moment is uncertain. If you include the plan Dominion Tower 2, then the total, you can't really see it, uh, but I can tell you it is, uh, I believe, uh, 26 million. Uh, would be, it goes from 17 to 26 million if the plan uh, second tower is built, because then that money would, would be going into the general fund if that second tower is built. And so that's you know, what I'm emphasizing here is what's clearly in the overlap area, the, increment, uh, the incremental real estate taxes from existing properties. And I feel it's our responsibility to council to let them know that this is what's being committed uh, to this project during the first five years uh, if, if they approve this plan. Therefore, the commission's financial model... Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, you probably said it three times and I didn't quite understand um, you could go back to slide. Yeah. So the, the area circles in the overlap area. Yeah. That is taxes from existing properties in the increment area that uh, are in addition to the baseline. That's addition to the baseline, yes. That, I, if you look here, I didn't talk about it specifically, but in the diagram it does say that's clearly part of the future general fund is the base taxes, which would be the, the amount of taxes those existing properties pay uh, as a, based on the proposed 2020 assessment. So that um, 
is just contractual, but there's no deadline or a or dollar amount uh, associated with it, and we have some of those aspects. Uh, there's uh, a level just that it's stated in a non-binding document, we, such as the ones I've been talking about. All of those bond parameters are not legal. They're not, as I said at the very beginning, right now, all of those are going to be determined uh, in the future. But this is what the plan is assuming at this time. And so that's what we have, really, this confirmation level for much of what we're looking at. Then there's verbal assurance. Uh, actually, I should have added written assurances. There'll be one aspect I'm going to talk about in a moment, which we have written assurance, but not confirmation. And imply. And there are a number of things implied, including some of the assumptions that I've already talked about. So let's talk about the arena revenues in particular. And the reason I wanted to start with that is because if you look at the diagram uh, that I had a moment ago, the arena revenues is clearly outside the future general fund. No arena, no arena revenues. And so... John, um, I'm going to ask that we suspend for just a minute. Okay. Uh, Dr. Lucas needs to get over to home. I was ready to finish this. Okay. I'll give you one step a little longer. Okay. Yeah. All right. These are I'm sorry. Okay. And, and again, the, the the type for the actual table that I'm using, which is from Unicap, uh, is too small to see. But thankfully, I've added at the bottom my own notes that if you look at the two columns that I've highlighted for sponsorship, the combined total over the entire bond period is expected to be over 100 million, 108 million, and that. At this point, and I'll, I'll, I'll emphasize that, the confirmation level is that this amount of commitment is stated, but we don't have not, but we do not have, it, it's stated in a non-binding document. We do not have uh, actual uh, agreements in place to confirm that. And in particular, this is one area where, where there could be, I mean, since this is clearly generated from the arena, it'd be in the interest, uh, I believe, to, to, to strongly confirm this and to show that, yes, this money is coming in. Uh, if you look at what's in the lease, this is actually in the ground lease that's part of the 1,000-plus page ordinance. John, let me go back to that point about the sponsorship. Yes. Now, the response we got last night indicated from the city, uh, from our uh, course of our inquiries from our last meeting, indicated that the sponsorships will be made public once the agreement is solidified, is signed and uh, consummated. Yes, you are two slides ahead of me. Okay. <laughs> but yes, but, so we we can't. I mean, there's no transparency. I mean, we we it, it hinges on if they're. If we have an agreement, then, then we'll know about the sponsorship. Yes, and, I, and I'll, I'll put that up so that people can see what we saw. Okay. I also think that is one of the things that happens. So the condition preceding the closing. That's one. When at that moment, when we say, city says, did they do everything they were supposed to do before the bonds were issued? I think one of the other guys at that moment would be able to before they pull the trigger. No, the response last night doesn't even give me that. that, that that's, it is after. It, it comes after. Uh, it doesn't I, come. It, it's, it's not prior to. I understand, but I read the documents. 
city council decides that they would, you know, but it would be before the actual closing date. Uh, later on, that would be the official financial closing date. Uh, the point uh, that I wanted to make uh, is this is what's actually in the lease involving sponsorship. There are no dollar amounts or, or commitments that I can see uh, as far as an amount. And when you look at uh, where there, those would be, the developer agreement defers to the financing documents, which we do not have, and which apparently have not been completed yet. So at this point, there is no dollar amount that is contractual that I can see that would need to be met at a closing. And so this is what's in the, uh, the lease itself. It says that, uh, as I just said, that the financing documents would have the particular details and, and contractual uh, commitments. It says that the tenant, uh, in this case, uh, NH District Corps, would be the one uh, to sell the naming rights and could sell them to anyone that it wanted, and that, uh, that the revenues from uh, both the naming rights sponsorship and other uh, sponsorships would be used for uh, bond payment, at least to a certain extent. And that's uh, uh, important to point out as well, that this is important. This is an important revenue stream for the bonds, uh, especially uh, initially. This is what we got last night. And these responses, for those of you that are interested, there's a link right now, uh, because I put it up before I came here, uh, to the city responses to our questions on our website, navyhillcommission.org. And so if you want to get uh, not only this language, but all of the answers to our questions, you can download them as we speak, as I speak. What we got last night was that, and, and I've highlighted here, and I've just put highlight, this is part of that, that the naming rights and other marketing uh, aspects will remain confidential until council approval. So we don't have confirmation at this moment, and we don't know who has those uh, rights, although uh, it appears that they have been sold, because what I've highlighted below is that the marketing partners have already committed and that there are certain agreements in place. We have written assurance of these amounts, but we don't have the uh, supporting documentation uh, to confirm it. In addition, I, and this is related to the arena, but I just wanted to point it out uh, as part of the due diligence review that I did, just to make you aware of it. There is a development management fee involved with the project. As I highlighted here, developer will be uh, entitled uh, to a development management uh, fee equal to 2% of the cost of the arena. As I, as I read that, again, I'll leave it to the lawyers to, to correct me uh, as far as the actual language. Uh, it's not unusual for a developer to have a developer fee, but this is what's being set up in this case. In addition, uh, as is in the developer agreement in that ordinance, it says that the developer is also entitled to receive an amount equal to $2 million uh, initially in order to retroactively compensate uh, them for the work they've done to the project up until the financial close. Do you want to, I mean, I'm going now into a different part if you want to check.
to the developer parts. Did you want me to keep going? Why don't we uh, suspend here for 10 minutes and we'll come back. All right, John, let's, uh, let's go on. And Dr. Lucas says uh, you want to spend just a couple minutes, uh, and I know you've got to duck out for a minute. John, you got how much more? Thank you. 
causation versus correlation. If you look it up in the on science, you, know, you have situations where two things happen in tandem, and the question is, is one thing causing the second, or are they simply happening in correlation? And to a certain extent, there is this aspect here. The development parcels that I've talked about have not yet been declared surplus by the city of Richmond. The process is moving along uh, to do that. Therefore, prior private development was not possible on these particular parcels, and these parcels have not been in the past actively marketed by the city. So we don't know alternative possibilities for those parcels. Much of the plan development, especially during the first sequence, involves the uses I just pointed out. Uh, uses such as office research that are not typically associated with arenas and brings the mind the question, would you really need an arena uh, to have this office research uh, aspect? There are two parcels in particular, the parcel B that I talked about, parcel A3 is another bill to suit uh, parcel as well that involves uh, office research. So there is the question, of whether or not the new arena, as I just said, I'm getting ahead of myself, is directly needed to cause the development of these parcels. And if there, and, and that's an important question, because if there is no causal link, and as of now I'm not aware of confirmation that there is such a link, I haven't seen any document that says we will not pursue development of this particular parcel unless there is a new arena. So at this point, that is implied. And so if there is not a causal link, development of one or of, of one or more of these parcels could independently occur in correlation with further consideration of a new arena. Uh, and I think that's at least important to bring out uh, at this point as, as, a, as, as, a, as a topic and potential option to talk about. Here's an example of something being developed right now without this plan. This is, and it just came out in Richmond Business not too long ago. It's a 100,000 square foot uh, office research uh, complex. It is almost across the street from the existing Coliseum. It's actually one, it's on the corner uh, across uh, Lee Street from the Coliseum. It's able to be developed uh, with the Coliseum even as it is now. And so again, this sort of reinforces this idea of is there the potential for correlation of development of individual parcels without the entire plan. Then there's also the aspects of revenues coming from both the meals taxes and the lodging taxes in particular. There are other tax sources, but I'm just going to key in on the meals and lodging because it is significant, 16% of the total expected revenue stream using the regular payment schedule I had talked about before. These taxes, it's important to know because at times I've seen some misunderstanding. This tax uh, application is only for those taxes, the meals taxes and lodging taxes, on the development parcel. Not for the entire increment financing area, only the development parcels. However, even within that, John, excuse me, one question. Isn't that also true for the sales taxes? That yes. Those are actually yes. the development parcels right. themselves, and so those are predominantly hotel. Uh, it's an additional tax for uh, on hotels and, and meals tax and retail that would uh, encompass that. 
Yes, I mean, all of the tax revenue, I mean, all of the, the sales tax, the DPOL taxes, all of that is only involving the development parcels, not the existing properties. So even within the context of looking at it from the, these development parcels, there is the potential, at least, and I, that's why I want to bring this up as a consideration, of potential cannibalization. What I mean by that is that a significant amount of the planned future tax revenues for the bond payment is from lodging taxes generated by the new convention hotel or from part of the meals tax charged by new restaurants on the development parcels. For example, and this is at first glance, but I, I, I wanted to bring this up just to show you more of the magnitude involved. For example, planned lodging tax revenue would be $2.5 million for 2022 based on the movie cap numbers. From what I see, that would be 28% of all the occupancy tax revenue collected by the city of Richmond in fiscal year 2019 based on the numbers that came from the convention authority. That's a sizable number of all of the lodging taxes. With meals tax, the meals tax revenues expected from the development parcels would be $3.1 million in 2022, again, according to the that would be, from my calculation, 8% of all of the prepared food tax revenues for the city of Richmond and FY2018 based on the CAFR for uh, that year. Uh, again, a significant number considering the number of, 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 of parcels that we're talking about generating that level of, of meals tax revenues in relation to the entire city. If these sales, both meals, lodging, if these sales take away from existing and new businesses in the city outside of these development parcels, then the development parcels would be, to a certain extent, cannibalizing tax revenues that would normally have gone to the future general fund. And that's why I put here in this diagram question marks for the source here with the Navy Hillman. At this point, I just don't know. You know, what, you know. How much of those revenues should be here, clearly generated by the Navy Hill Fund? You know, no arena, no, no, no tax revenues from this to this level. Or should at least some of those revenues from meals tax lodging in particular be part of this overlap area? That if it's not, that it's taking away sales from existing hotels and, and restaurants from elsewhere in the city. Remember, anywhere else in the city, if it's taking uh, sales away, then that would have been money going to the future general fund. And therefore, even though even though for the Navy Hill Fund, that's fine. For the future general fund, it's now part of the overlap area. It's, 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 it's money that would have gone to our general fund. I assume that it's equally possible that the opposite is true, which is that it's additive. So, for example, a new restaurant in Scott's Edition generates restaurant traffic in the Scott's Edition, so a new restaurant generates new restaurants rather than cannibalizes old restaurants. Yes. That is to say, you have new visitors, you have new hotel rooms, you have new jobs, and so rather than cannibalizing, it says... Oh, yeah, it always amazes me, you know. You, uh, but uh, you build a new apartment building, and I'm just using Scott's addition, that attracts more apartment buildings. So it's, uh, I understand the cannibalization issue, but it seems to me, for the moment at least, 
at least equally possible that the exact opposite is true, which is to say it attracts new uses of that time. To a certain level, there would be active. I mean, for example, with new residents in that area from the new apartments, they would, they would be eating out a certain amount of time. Again, this is the assumption that if this project is not agreed to, that you wouldn't have those apartments in, in that area of downtown. You know, that, that's a big assumption to say that for the next few decades that there would not be through some other developer plan new apartments in this area, new restaurants in this area. So I think you know, you're, you're, you're absolutely right in that to a certain extent, such as specifically, and that's a good example, Scott's addition. I mean, that's additive. In the end, that, you know, that made that area of town uh, a popular area and added on top of whatever cannibalization it did from other existing restaurants. John, earlier I asked you a question about the tax between commercial property, you said it was flat to the residential commercial assumption, and then Mike asked you a question a few moments ago around the DC building, which is D. Then I go to that board up there, and I see commercial in the DC building. I'm not asking your question necessarily, as I'm asking the city to maybe revisit those boards, because there's multiple disconnects between what those boards say those buildings are intended to use. The tax rates in terms of revenues and who's going to be the occupier of the buildings. I'm just going to go back here a moment because I actually talked about parcel D. Uh, at the bottom here in my note, and again, as I had said before, anything that says note is me. It's not from the, the other source on the slide. Parcel D is a VCU related, and it was mentioned as, as VCU related in the city group presentation just this past Monday. Uh, it is a bill to suit office, research, hospitality, retail complex. So it, it goes beyond the office research on a specific topic. That's its predominant use, but it has many uses. And it's my understanding that not only is it independently funded, but that it would be taxable because it's included in the tax revenue projection. So D is taxable. That's my understanding, and that's what the MooneyCap uh, numbers assume. To be verified. <laughs> to be confirmed, yes. And Going back to due diligence. I mean, we, we don't have confirmation on that. And in the documents, it states that, that the VCU development for research is built to suit for VCU. That's my understanding. Again, I mean, I'm only going by what I am seeing elsewhere. I have not received anything in particular about this that's independent of what I'm seeing. In the Monday presentation by Citigroup, they specifically refer to this as a VCU project. Uh, it has been at least, it has been mentioned in the in the news media that there is uh, at least apparently again apparently that I haven't seen it a letter of intent involving this property uh, between the city and VCU, I believe VCU Health Services, which could be, again, I emphasize, could be the entity directly involved with this. I mean, that is, that's what's out there. But at least from what I am hearing, and there is consistency in what I'm hearing, it is at least, I think, I can comfortably say it is VCU related. So moving on from here, So therefore, finishing this, this point that I'm making, if there is, and I, 
said before, that we don't move all of it. To a certain extent, there is going to be some additive value. But the point I'm making is, we don't know if it's 100%. It could be a proportion of that. And, and if there is a proportion of that, that actually is uh, cannibalizing existing sales elsewhere, uh, then, then that amount that is cannibalized from existing businesses now becomes part of the overlap area. And that becomes revenue that the city would have received in the general fund that is now part of the Navy Hill Fund. Then I, I, and I'm pretty much getting near the end here. I did want to briefly talk about the Hunt and Uplift because you probably have seen it uh, referenced in, in various presentations and documents. Uh, the I've been relying for what you have seen up until now, mainly on the Mooney Cap numbers, both because that is the base source pretty much for everyone right now, uh, as well as for me personally, it's easy for me to work with those numbers. They're very clear. The methodology is right there. The assumptions are up front. Uh, but as far as the hunted uplift, the, and again, this is my understanding based on the report that was done last year in 2018 by Hyundai that essentially the Hyundai effect is almost, and I heard it just this past Monday, a halo effect of the project, that by having this arena and this new development, the entire Navy Hill project, that will enhance the appeal and ultimately the value of all of the existing properties within this TIF district. So I understand the premise. Unfortunately, in the Hunnan report, Hunnan does not give statistical support for that. There are no examples of, in this other city, you know, it was shown that there was an increase in, in, in assessed value of so much to, to justify any particular amount for this, for this uplift. Also, if you do a Google search for Hunnan uplift, the only time it's mentioned is with this project. And I'm not aware that they've used this type of halo effect on other projects that they've done. So at this point, with that level of uncertainty, and since Mooneycap and, and Citigroup are not using this, I'm not using that as well in, in the work that I'm doing. Probably the best way to look at it is there's that potential, but uh, I feel at least that we should not plan based on that potential. And especially since what has been done as far as quantitative research, and this is an example, and I use it and I'm using it because this example, rather than looking at a single comparable situation, looked at the experience of assessed values around 15, 15 major arenas. And you, you really can't read it uh, from the audience here, but essentially it says there's a major, that if there is a positive effect, that effect happens many years after the arena is built, and therefore it puts into question whether or not the arena actually caused that, or whether or not there were other factors involved since it is such a long period of time, and therefore the estimates involving that kind of effect uh, could be overstated. And so, finally, and I'm here at the end now, key takeaways uh, from what I talked about, uh, what I've just talked about. If I had to pick one aspect, a couple of points, it comes back to the incremental real estate taxes from the existing property in the increment financing area. I just really feel that council needs to understand uh, that there is a financial commitment involved, and it's significant that if you 
look at, especially during the first five years under the current uh, financing plan, that from the, you know, from the numbers that it appears we're all working with, that for the five, first five years, if you look at just the taxes from existing properties in there, you're looking at $17 million, beginning right away with $2 million next year and another $3 million uh, the following year. And, and during five years, 17. And that for the entire period, assuming we that ultimately, say it's a recession or other, or other problems involving getting the revenue uh, for the accelerated plan, if they have to follow the original plan, that ultimately there's over $300 million. That's, that in, a part of that may come back to the city. There is no guarantees. And so ultimately, that future source of revenue for the general fund would be at risk. I mean, that would essentially be a commitment of the city towards this project. So what are the next steps for what I'm doing? Wait, wait, wait. I just screwed that. Okay. Uh, doesn't that calculation assume the project still It assumes that the, the arena bond is issued. Right. So the the uh, so none of that money would be available, or almost the, the relevant comparison is not the three hundred sixteen. Relevant comparison uh, is if the project's not built, right? So the well, no, this money would come in if the project is not built. This is existing property tax revenues. This is just the existing properties in, in the increment financing area and the first existing Dominion Tower. This does not include anything happening with the developer parcels. This doesn't include anything else happening. It's just tax revenues from the existing properties within the increment financing area. So if there's no arena project, based on that 2% growth assumption, we can reasonably expect that over this period of time until 2048, that those properties as, as a group would generate more than $300 million of future tax revenues to the future right, general fund. I misunderstood. I thought you said for the head issues that didn't necessarily project was built. Right. 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 I mean, I've isolated just the existing. Okay. You know, that was the purpose of this particular analysis was to take out anything based on the project. This is just existing properties within that we know right now. They've already been built. They're already paying taxes. They would going to continue paying taxes. 2% seems reasonable, especially since there'll be other new uh, complexes and, and, and projects built within the downtown area. So that seems reasonable. We've achieved that 2% in the last two years. So that seems reasonably assured. And going way back and to what I talked about, to what Mooney had said itself back on Monday, the real estate taxes, especially from existing properties, this is the most certain set of numbers we have. Uh, compared to anything else that, you know, that we're looking at. We could be, this is what we're most reasonably assured is going to happen. So, next steps for what I'm doing, and hopefully, you know, as part of what the commission is doing, is, uh, and, and please, you know, if you have any questions, or if you have any questions about a number, or an aspect, you know, I have followed every presentation, I go to each of the work sessions myself, Personally, I uh, listen to the presentations if I'm not there. Um, if anyone's up to speed other than the people directly preparing these documents, you know, I would be a source. So I'm offering you know, what, in, in my assistance. If you have any questions, I may be able to answer right away as 
key areas that we further examine. This is what I personally feel committed to, uh, examining the expected incremental tax revenues from existing properties within the increment financing area. We're also known in a general sense as the, as the TIF district. Uh, I was just told uh, yesterday, for example, from the administration, that the, the parcels involved with the area, uh, have, there's been new compilation of those parcels and a new Mooney cap uh, report will likely be generated. I, you know, I will update everything I've done accordingly so that we're in sync with the latest numbers that everyone is using. So that's something I'm doing, especially as it focuses on this particular aspect. Also, and I think you know, personally this would be a good topic for a future uh, presentation from someone, uh, evaluate the market demand for the new arena itself, as well as for residences, office research, development, the lodging, the restaurants, and retail within the Navy Hill project area. Everything I've talked about is using the numbers that have been done. I have not changed them, I have modified them, but at some point we should look at the foundation of those projections in light of expected market demand for these uses. More research on the potential development correlation as far as the potential for one or more, of, for example, of the development parcels being independently developed or outside of this project and the potential for that as well as potential tax revenue cannibalization because again, if that's occurring or if that possibility exists, then we can move those revenues into the overlap area that did become part of the general fund regardless of what may happen to this particular project. And finally, and this is something that's already in the beginnings of being done elsewhere, is adding fiscal impact analysis as more data becomes available. There is some initial fiscal impact estimates with the ordinances that you have in, those, in the staff memo that precede the ordinances. In addition, however, there is a, a more fiscal impact analysis because what you have uh, is incomplete. There will be more fiscal impact analysis done, from my understanding, by the city as far as what's, you know, when you have all of, when you have thousands of new apartments, people live in those apartments. There are going to be children in those apartments. They're going to need to go to school. They're going to need to be teachers for those children. That cost should be accounted for in particular. Police officers to provide public safety for, the, for, for those apartments, as well as all of the, uh, of the development that's being added, and other city services, you know, as well as contribution of, of these taxes in general to all of the other costs that the city pays money to. So the fiscal impact analysis is an important part of this evaluation, but at this point, there's just not enough data. And finally, to document everything that I've talked about, as well as everything we're about to do in our commission report that is due in late December. John, I think on behalf of the commission, I want to express our thanks. Here. I'm ready to get more out of it. <laughs> well, you're, and, and you 
welcome. And as I had said to the council when, we, when I did the update for our commission uh, a little while ago, I said that all of us, not just me, but all of us, we're doing this as our civic duty. And so I, 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 yeah, I am doing that uh, as part of that effort. I feel that uh, responsible you know, I, because of the knowledge I have and experience, I feel that this is something I should be doing. All right, so what I want to do is, uh, Dr. Zouigas, if we could do in about five minutes uh, of commentary from you, then I want to hear from Mr. Sledge if he has any comments um, on the presentation, and then uh, reserve the balance of the time for public comment uh, here. Okay, thank you. Uh, once again, John, thank you. I, um, my comments are two, two part. One, direct questions to Finance, and ultimately, uh, when we get down to the business model, but also the social impact. I think that, <clears throat> particularly if we look at the impact approval of, of, of the ordinance, and I, I think that this is what Dr. Wong was trying to extract also, that we cannot separate the social impact from the physical impact of the foundation that we make now is critical to uh, uh, the future of not just the project and, and the city. I think that with that, there are a number of uh, assumptions that are, are made of the project's success and the benefit of the city, uh, and they all hinge on the developer's surety. Right? And, and the project will generate some level of surplus, right? That's what brings the paper uh, seem to uh, uh, propose. I think with your presentation, you've tried to, if you will, mitigate against this halo effect, as you've said multiple times. I guess, for me, why should we be confident in the surety of the developer's projections with all of the things that you have discussed and shared today? Now, I think that's something that I would like to put. You turned it and, 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 and seemed to qualify in a further discussion for additional due diligence of the commission. Uh, but and just really understanding why should we be confident in the projections of those things that are, uh, have been outlined by the developer and, and regarding around surplus. Because surplus uh, is, if you will, uh, an important, important part of this. The other is this whole notion of, of equity investment. Do you, do you want me to start with answer one at a time? Oh, I, you know, I'm because so I'm going to pick your first question. Yeah. 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 spend a lot of time on it, and we need more time. When we talk about uh, the bond investment as, if you will, uh, a private wealth building opportunity and various forms of equity investment, I, I'm very much interested in how will minority individuals and small mid-level uh, businesses participate and, and benefit, if you will, from this financial business model being articulated. I think I would like to really, really understand the interpretation of participate and benefit as key terms to be defined and as I said just key processes to to be outlined. Uh, I think that's just very important uh, how we participate in these issues. Uh, 
Um, the next is, uh, there's a lot of anxiety over a 30-year tip, right? And I think we need to, particularly as we look at the senatorial approach, uh, and, and we know that it's needed to mitigate the you know, risk uh, for the best. We get that, but I think that we have to be clear as outlining that we can the best possibilities with your help. You know, what were, uh, what were, and if any, are these other options or strategies uh, uh, that were considered or need to be considered and were considered, why, why not? Because I think you, and I, I slipped that in there because you ended in this whole, it seems to be a notion that uh, if the arena is a part of it, is a, there's a strategy, this is what I have, this is the information provided. And so it would be great to hear a little bit about what were all of these other options that were considered. Uh, if we can hear a little bit about them and then why they weren't selected and why this um, I think to get to that a little bit is uh, it seemed to be the case that the um, the assumption was that Marina is uh, the anchor project right, to all of this development. Uh, it, it, it also seems though that the Percentages generated from the tax that, if you will, stimulate the various funds, uh, ultimately uh, are really about uh, real estate. And it seems to be a larger percentage. And so, just a clarity: uh, if it is reliant on the arena or and uh, real estate development, uh, and we don't know various sponsorships and what it, it, we really need to spend time on, what is this business model around this arena? And specifics around it, revenue, and how does this whole arena project really take of this? And just to get some insight, it's just what I haven't read or seen. I think um, the, I think it's very important. These discussions today are the foundations of any social impact that will happen. That will also be transformative along with the project. And, and I don't, I don't think that. Uh, we need to uh, necessarily not consider uh, a, a very detailed discussion of the benefits and impact. So here are some, if you will, um, just things that I have read and heard and, and discussed. I think we need to put on the table just to get clear, clear answers, right? clear answers about this. Um, uh, and, and particularly since it says the origins. Right, so here's one, right? What, what protections do we have uh, and just listening in to your conversation today, what protections do we have that the community benefits that are detailed happen and are sustainable? And ultimately, one that it won't be about simply the developer's interest or, or their desire or another council coming in and changing. But if we make this decision for the length of this time, how do we ensure? Uh, that, that some of these benefits to the community are awesome. I think that the other one is this whole notion of, of social enterprise. It was stimulated uh, when we talked a little bit about uh, VCU and development resources and, and, and the various economic development sites within the project of real estate. Well, are there any other beyond just VCU and research center? Are there any other social social uh, enterprising efforts that are happening that we just don't know about? Are people in the community coming together and trying to build, if you will, um, some organizations or approaches or or, uh, or or 
or some or some ways to participate economically uh, that we have not heard, I have not heard, and if they have not, how will we uh, allow others to participate as BCU has uh, clearly in, in, in getting, in getting uh, to participate in that way? Um, you said it also at, at, at the end in a comment. Maybe write that down immediately, right? We need some details around uh, this whole workforce development, job training, community reentry, university-based academic preparation, and how will it be achieved, right? You said, you said hey, people are going to be living here, their kids will be living here. Well, there are also people who will be impacted in the zone that we talked about last meeting, who uh, uh, particularly the tips on that, we know in the communities that kids are already there, right? And so, uh, So how do we really detail that for people to, uh, to really be able to work and to make the benefits that the, uh, the project promises that we have? All there are also you know, great concerns that I think we have to also deal with about does the project and with the funds and where the dollars and revenue go uh, and uh, particularly with the turbo approach, let's be clear and address these issues does this project divert any funding from public school systems or anything like that? Let's just answer that. Uh, put that on the table. Very, very clear about it. Uh, I think that the other is this whole notion that we just need to be upfront about. Uh, does the uh, affordable housing units and project and all that, uh, or is it replacement housing? What is the impact on Gilbert Court and the like? And, and let's just address that issue so we can hear some response and, and be clear. Um, the last one for, for me is uh, really, I think what is a lesson learned. You, you did it, you, you said it also on your slide, and that's why I wrote it down. That when you, you did it, a, a brief comparison to these 25 other cities in which there were uh, projects of the sort that Arena was at the center of economic development. Uh, and, and I just want to. How will this project impact uh, primarily minority small business community uh, as opposed to or in comparison to other urban cities and with, with, with uh, some direct, if you will, uh, understanding of what looms out there, if you will, and the impact of, of, of what happened in Baltimore and other types of cities. Um, on one side, it, it seems that we say that the city cannot um, import uh, a major team, but yet the activity of the arena is essential to the revenue at the 13 percent that we also said. And so how do we really see all of this work together in, in light of all of the research and everybody, uh, everybody has done? So that is it. I might think about some other things while I'm cheering for a team and meeting our teams. All of you are invited, by the way. Uh, but thank you, thank you, thank you for letting me. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lucas. And we understand you've got some other outreach uh, here. All that. Yeah, thank you. So um, I would right now like to, we don't need to respond because there's a, a lot there, um, both uh, quantitative, uh, qualitative, and frankly more questions. Uh, there. So I do want to give Mr. Sledge and his team an opportunity to make any commentary um, today on, on, on what they've heard. John, did you know what you're doing? I thank you. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Deborah. doing 
to commit for 30 years for a project that is not really going to benefit the individuals of the city all that much. But it is going to take revenues out of our pocket for five years, as John pointed out. I think I'm saying that correctly. And further down the line, what the city should do is they should get out of this business. This is not a government business. It's Madison Square Garden does not make money. They, they have nothing to report. They make it because of all the deals that they do and the negotiations. <clears throat> what the city should do is lease this property for 50 years and collect revenues from day one to add to the coffers of the general fund. That we should not be participating or running this kind of business. And uh, we should also participate more directly in the boon to this project. The boon to this project is what NH Development wants, and that's they want the property. It's not like we're giving. We're. It's not like we're not already putting something out there. We're putting tremendous amount of money in the form of real estate into this whole venture. We could collect immediately if instead of a coliseum. We just did parking. We make it. Richmond makes a hell of a lot of money in parking. And if you develop that even further, you could just make a hole in the ground and start making money from day one to add to the revenues of the city, not to track. This whole Coliseum project should be run by a corporation, not by the government. We couldn't do shot go bottom properly. That took a lot of time, a lot of money, wasn't done right, a lot of people upset. Let a corporation or a business group come in who we know we're dealing with and we know that they're a viable organization and let's collect taxes and let's collect the money immediately. We don't have to go through all this machination. Okay. Thank, Thank you, Mr. Becker. Appreciate your comments.
rely solely uh, on those numbers as well. I also would like to confirm uh, money that comes from out of the general fund uh, typically has to, uh, there's a great study called Tale of Two Cities by Mike Quigley, now Congressman Mike Quigley, that talks about typically anything getting taken out of the general fund typically has to be paid by tax increases, uh, typically in the district surrounding the tip area because the tax increase within the tip area just goes back to the tip. So this has implications uh, also for the surrounding districts as well. So when you're in diagram, I noticed to the right you said tips outside of that. But actually, the longitudinal data says that that would actually be within the bin because to make up that difference, uh, that simply is exacerbated also when you fail to reserve the right to adjust the base for inflation each year and also scaling out citywide that typically um, after a typically within six years other TIF districts when they were on the surrounding area appear as well so then it's a compounded effect as well because those then typically are taking out the general fund uh, and also be tax based statewide when you're talking about balancing the budget as well so just encouraging that and I'll attach that um, study as well as far as the full ACLU report and this as well in my public Thank you, Mr. Chipper.
management area, uh, specifically around racial equity. And my comment is that this project for the last year has been sold to many black artists and cultural leaders at this arena is what is needed to bring in revenue. With assuming that these black creators can see themselves within this project and assuming that they are trying to engage black creatives and artists to say yes to this project, after this presentation today, it really just seems like this is manipulating folks to be engaged and excited. So what is the actual benefit for the city Thank you. 
part of creating that urban grid, part of creating the possibility for a walkable city. We've got to fill in those streets that go down 25 feet on Clay uh, Street, fill those up, and then put uh, all the infrastructure there. When we're looking at wrapping housing around the parking garages, those are really not comfortable streets to walk by as people. We have to, we're actually building out onto a street that there. that street's going to be removed in one of those locations, maybe building C, I'm thinking. Uh, the idea of infrastructure, the bus transfer center, is so important to our city. That is what we're talking about when we're looking at equitability. That is one of those items um, that you know I think uh, Dr. Lucas, Lucas was getting into. That's important. Um, the public housing component is extremely important. Uh, so, in general, I think that um, one thing that I want you to do is I want you to look at the demographics of the area. I want you to look at the population base immediately around the quarter-mile buffer and the half-mile buffer to take a look at how many people can be involved. And I want you to think about this as creating an investment in our city that will pay for schools, that will pay for public housing. Thank you, sir. I just wanted to push the ahead. Those of you that, that speak now, you are uh, free to send a follow-up email that provides more details, recaps what you talked about. As long as you do it in the next few days, it will be attached to one of the official minutes of this meeting. So you know, don't feel obligated to get everything out early. You have an opportunity to follow up in writing. Okay, my name is John Moser, a resident of the third district. I am going to detail uh, a couple of issues in writing. I'm just hit the highlights of them here. And then I have a question about finances from your presentation. I'm concerned about the um, manageability of the project after it gets approved. And um, in particular, I've, I've noted in listening to the recent presentations to City Council that it sounds to me like the City Council has approval of this up to the master plan stage. And then after that, the project will be managed by city staff working with the EDA. I'm concerned about that because there's so much detail that occurs after master planning and design development and construction documents that could change the project. I'm also concerned, as I've mentioned in other comments, about the EDA role in the project and comments that were made two presentations ago to city council uh, where they were talking about how city staff will be used to manage the project on behalf of the EPA. To me, that undermines the arm's length kind of relationship one expects from the EPA and the city. And I don't think the city has a plan for staffing. Uh, that's very important. But the question I have about today's presentation is really a very simple one that I haven't been able to determine yet. The financial projections, are they based on a, on a constant real estate tax rate. Yes, yes. They are. So what, what the follow-on concern there is that, as we just saw uh, last year in, the, in a, a very difficult budget battle with the city where the mayor was trying to raise tax rates, uh, as during the life of this project, we're going to be going through budget cycles every year. And so I'm quite concerned that uh, how do we analyze the effect of a lower tax rate or more likely an increased tax rate that might come along to try to generate more revenue for this project? That's all I have. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Moser. 
Good morning. Thank you. Um, my name is Sandra Antoine, a longtime resident of the city of Richmond, born and raised in an area of the city that back in the day was called Penitentiary Bottom, but thank God that's dissolved and through growth and corporate development and other development in that area, um, we now have a more appealing um, look to that area to include the War Memorial and other areas around the city. And I am a Vietnam veteran, so I do appreciate that War Memorial. But I do want to say that in all of this, I am um, actively um, boost on rail in support of a project such as this. I grew up in that time in the city, those segregated times, when um, not being too young to realize that the, the manner in which I could travel throughout this city on the bus with my grandmother that would shop at those stores like Miller Rose, Tall Hammers, Woolworths, not understanding that the, the opportunities that were not afforded to her, that I now appreciate that here we can freely roam in this city and have opportunities to expand and have a voice in those uh, establishments or opportunities that will bring wealth to those, the least of our residents in this city. So what I am looking forward to is the commission um, report addressing the wealth building aspect of this project and how it will benefit those in our cities that are less fortunate than others. Activist. 
Um, I first would like to thank you uh, all for the work that you're doing, and I would like to say that I don't think anyone um, is against uh, forward progress and development, and I think the narrative that, I mean, we all know this city is growing organically in the most beautiful way, um, and we want to do everything to continue uh, to encourage that. I, I want to thank you for pointing out that the issue of the development of the Coliseum does not necessarily correlate with the development of the rest of the project, because so often we're being told that it's all or nothing. And if we're, I'm not saying we shouldn't build a Coliseum, but I think we ought to recognize, thank you for helping us to recognize there's other ways of accomplishing that goal if, as a city, we choose to do that. I would like to thank you for pointing out the fact that the land and the parcels that we are now discussing have never been surplused or never been put up for any other developer to offer uh, proposals and so that uh, so there has never been a competitive process or other opportunities uh, for, for uh, consideration. Um, I would also like to thank you for, because, for sharing with us that while the city uh, and the mayor is consistently saying that there is no financial commitment on the part of the city of Richmond, I would like to thank you for pointing out that in the first five years, based on the current revenue projections, that there is a $300 million commitment if we just allow things to go on organically. Um, lastly, I was a little troubled by the fact that we would be considering as a city signing a contract that has so many details to it that won't be finalized until after we make the agreement to do it. And I don't know, I mean, if there are more kind of contracts out there that the city's doing like that, I'd like to give one. Because um, that seems like a pretty good deal if you can sign it and then fill in the blanks afterwards. So, so I would like to see us really work a little harder on getting some blanks filled in um, so that we could kind of know who's who and, and what's what and who are we really, as a city, partnering with because until we know what, who we're partnering with, that's the only way we will ever be able to figure out what their commitments truly are. Thank you. Thank you for some of the information that was provided. I actually
we do appreciate you, Mr. Gurney, for showing up at the work sessions in which we get an opportunity from a city perspective to provide a clarification and education on the total project. We know that your role here as a commission is to review those ordinances and provide, provide your recommendation to city council. So we wanted to ask that we have that opportunity to come before the commission by way of presentation, but also by way of dialogue. We received several questions and we provided responses to those. Uh, what we like to do is to be able to provide clarification for that information in a public forum. So not only will the commission understand and get to hear the responses, but also the public. And we see that there's a lot of interest in the project and we're very pleased at that. The second point I'd like to say is that we have our financial advisors here for the city and we'd like our financial advisors to have that opportunity to provide that clarification on the financing models. Uh, we heard some comments in regards to schools and it's not Coliseum or an arena versus schools, it's both and. And we uh, realized that there'll be revenues coming from the project, not after the five years, but in year number three. And don't want to miss the fact that in the last budget, the city fully funded schools requests. And city council actually provided an ordinance that moved forward to say what percentage of the increased revenues that's going to Richmond Public Schools. But bottom line is that we want to be able to provide that clarification, not just to the commission so that they can provide recommendations to city council on the ordinances, but a full education on the project. So we want to thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right, so we are doing a public comment. Let me go around very uh, quickly, and uh, I'm going to start with the, uh, we'll just go around the corner here real quick and start uh, 